Welcome to the Tap and Solution Podcast. I'm Alex Ortner, and along with my brother Nick and my sister Jessica, we've helped millions of people around the world for over 10 years to transform their lives, and all using the brain rewiring, energy shifting, out of this world amazing technique known as tapping. On this podcast, we'll share information, strategies, tapping, and at times inspiring interviews, all to help you live your best life. Welcome, friends. This is Jessica Ortner. And as you know, I'm truly passionate about helping you live a happier and a healthier life. And you may be doing a great job tapping and releasing stress only to be adding stress back into your life through the foods you eat. Yes, the foods you eat do impact your emotional health and your stress levels. Personally, my own struggles with food started when I was 15 and I went on my first diet. And I remember even as a young teenager, food felt confusing. And my only goal was to lose weight. But every diet just led to more disappointment until I discovered tapping in my 20s. And that's when I decided to focus on my relationship with food. I began to look closely at how my emotions would lead to binge eating, how my beliefs about myself and about my own self-worth would lead me to sabotage my own success. But also in this process, I began to discover how the food I was eating in turn also impacted my emotions. You can read more about my journey in my book, The Tapping Solution for Weight Loss and Body Confidence. But today, we're going to spend some time talking about food, how looking at what you're eating shouldn't only happen when you want to lose a few pounds, but that the food we eat impacts our emotional well-being. You could be meditating, you could be tapping, you can be releasing all the stress, but we have to support the progress we're making with the food that we are eating. So we have a very special guest today, and I want to start by reading a short passage from his new book called Eat Smarter. He writes, what we eat doesn't just affect our weight. It also affects our ability to focus, our ability to communicate with others, and even our ability to make more or less income. Our food choices influence our sleep quality, our body's ability to defend itself from disease, and the quality of our skin and outward appearance, and it even controls how long we are going to live. So these brilliant words in this brilliant book was written by Sean Stevenson. He's here today. Let me tell you a little bit about Sean. Sean is the author of the international bestseller book Sleep Smarter and the creator of the Model Health Show featured as the number one health podcast in the U.S. with millions of listeners, downloads every year. He's a graduate of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Sean studied business, biology, and nutritional science and went on to be the founder of Advanced Integrative Health Alliance, a company that provides wellness services for individuals and organizations worldwide. You may have heard of him already because he's been featured in Forbes and Fast Company, New York Times, Muscle and Fitness. I mean, he is a big deal. You can learn more about him at themodelhealthshow.com. Sean, welcome. Uh, thank you so much. I appreciate you. Everything sounds better when you say it. 
Well, I so appreciate you being here. This is a topic I'm passionate about, and I wanted to share that intro because we're so sick of hearing about diets, and I wanted to be very clear that the work that you do is about eating smarter. It's about understanding how food is impacting you. I want to back up a little bit because someone might look at you and your six-pack abs and just think that you've been healthy since the day you were born. Can you tell us a bit about your relationship with food growing up? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I definitely (laughs) did not come out of the womb with my six-pack. No, no, no. (laughs) As a matter of fact, you know, I grew up in very different circumstances. I mean, literally different ends of the spectrum. You know, one portion of my life, I lived with my grandmother in a very nice suburban neighborhood. The school that I went to, elementary school, was just a block away. A lot of safety, security, a lot of love and, and attention and focus on education and creativity. My grandmother loved me like so much. It was absurd. You know, like the other grandkids, I think she has like 15. I don't count the rest of them. <laughs> no, I'm still just kidding. I love those guys. But I was the oldest, you know, and so there's always been this thing in the family like, Sean's your favorite, Sean's your... Yes. Yes. But I actually, I lived with her, you know, like she kind of took care of me, you know, when my mother couldn't, you know, my mother was a teenager when she had me and just a very volatile situation that she lived in. Now, the thing is with her loving me like she did, and this was the eighties, this was like the early eighties. This is the absolute golden age of processed foods. This is when it really hit its like metamorphosis. And not only did she, of course, like if you love your kids, you want to take care of them, but she wanted me to be happy. And as I talk about in the book, food really fits into the paradigm of love languages very, very neatly. You know, if anybody knows about that pioneering work from Gary Chapman and one of her love languages that she was communicating to me was this communication of food being like a gift, food being like something that for her, I give back to her as words of affirmation and how much I enjoy and love my little macaroni and cheese, my little fishy sticks, you know? So she just basically wanted me to eat all the things that I liked. And my grandfather often had a different meal for me and he would give me the side eye, like, why does he get to eat these nuggets? And I'm eating like, you know, I don't know, country crock and whatever he was eating. So long story short, my grandmother really instilled in me my eating habits very early. She loved me very much, but she allowed me to eat just processed foods was the majority of what I ate. And the crazy part was she had a garden. She grew her own food. She like canned stuff and like fermented things. And my grandfather was a hunter, but yeah, that was all kind of wasted on me. And so- I mean, people just didn't know. You said in it, you're like, she loved me and she was doing something like she was doing what she thought was best. We didn't have the information back then on what really happens to the body when we're eating this type of food. Yeah. And the craziest part, and you know this, we're still dealing with the ramifications. Yeah. We have hundreds of millions of people here in this country that have still have no idea that food is what you're made of. Everything about us is made from food. Our brain cells, the dendrites, the axon terminals, the gray matter, the white matter, it's all made from food. The thing that allows us to have thoughts, feelings, and emotions is made from food. Our heart is made from the food we eat. Yeah. I know the top cardiologists in the world, and they might go to school for 12 years and yet get two weeks of training on what the heart is actually made of, which is food. The blood in our veins, our arteries, all of our tissues are made from what we eat. And so 
Cut to, you know, moving in with my mother in the inner city, much more volatile. You know, we lived in, you know, situations where it's like gunshots and sirens a lot. You have to really be careful even going outside. You know, it's it's very different. But also now we're on, you know, food stamps. We're getting, you know, food from charities and things like that. And it's all processed foods as well. And so I was just making my body out of these things, but I had no idea. We were just eating. We were just eating, trying to survive and live our lives. But because of what I was making my body out of, when I was 15 years old was the first instance of everything falling apart. I was at track practice and I was literally looked at, you know, going to D1 colleges, all that stuff. But at track practice, I broke my hip from running, all right? My bones were so brittle, my hip broke just from running as a kid. Wow. That should be a big red flag coming up right? <laughs> for physicians, but I got what's called standard of care. You know, here's some NSAIDs, stay off the leg, keep it moving. But ultimately when I was 20 years old, I got diagnosed with this really devastating so-called incurable degenerative disc disease and very rapidly kind of degenerated bone. My bone density was very low. And my physician told me that this was, you know, like I said, incurable. And you mentioned this before we got started. I swear, I have no idea to this day what compelled me to ask him this question. But I asked him, does this have anything to do with what I'm eating? And he looked at me like I was from another planet. And let me be clear, he was also obese. I don't usually even mention that. And he meant well. He wasn't trying to hurt me or to implant this nocebo effect. But he told me food has nothing to do with this. And that this is just something that happens. It just happens. And I'm sorry it happened to you. He wrote me a prescription. I eventually got a back brace. And the next two years, I just spent in chronic debilitating pain. You know, it went from a nuisance of a pain that brought me in, but that nocebo effect really hit me hard. And I got to talk about this really quick, Jess. This is important in association with tapping and really understanding how our minds and bodies are so much more powerful than we realize Every thought we have has correlating chemistry that's released. Every thought we have. And a lot of folks don't realize that when we have the very best clinical trials, placebo-controlled, double-blind placebo-controlled trial, we have to account for the placebo. And that gets like missed. The placebo is so effective, we have to account for it. Right. It's not fake. People think placebo means it's fake, but it's not because the results are real. That's the thing. They're just from right? their mind. So we get this, exactly. We get this description of it being a fake surgery, fake pill, fake treatment. But the results, again, are very real and measurable to the degree that placebos are about 33% effective on average in clinical trials. So somebody just believing that this is going to normalize their blood sugar, that it's going to dissolve their cancer tumor, that it's going to normalize their blood pressure, the list goes on and on. And the data exists. There's mountains of data. You know, and I'm a scientist, 10 years in clinical practice, 19 years in this field. I didn't know that stuff existed from my conventional university education, but it does. But on the other side, that's getting a positive injunction. Something's going to happen. When you get a negative injunction from an authority figure that something bad is going to happen, you know, you'll never walk again. This is incurable. You're going to be on medication your entire life. You have six weeks to live. And how powerful these statements are. I just shared a study on social media the other day, big meta-analysis talking about how important it is for physicians to be more conscientious about the words they use because of the clinical ramifications 
the damage that can be done just by the power that our words invoke and the associated thoughts, right? So I just wanted to give that little sidebar and then put a cherry at the end of the story. So two years go by, I gained a a lot of weight, a lot of weight, because now I'm already eating the way that I've been eating since I was a child, making my body out of this fake food, really, every single meal. I ate fast food almost every meal because it was cheap and accessible where I lived, you know, in Ferguson, Missouri at the time while I was in college. And I wasn't moving because he told me not to. All the physician, I did get a second and third opinion, which I always encourage people to do. But every time I saw a doctor, they told me bed rest. And I could walk still. Like, I could still walk. I was kind of in some pain, but you know why? Everything began to atrophy then. And so two years, and this is where everything changed. I realized that I had this habitual question, and I know a lot of people have this same kind of epiphany. I was continuously asking myself, why me? Why me? Why is this happening to me? Why won't somebody help me? And that disempowering question was just on repeat in my mind. I wasn't really aware of it necessarily. And our mutual friend where we met with Jim Quick, yeah, he talks about we have this dominant question that we're always asking. And so for some people, it's how can I get people to like me? Um, like me, and this is where my question changed after two years, instead of asking why me, I ask, how can I get better? I didn't even consider that being an option for those two years. And I see myself as somebody who's very assertive and empowered and logical, but I just believe what they told me. And even though they meant well, they don't walk in my shoes. And so when I asked that question, and this is the end of the story, when I asked that question, this is absolutely true. Suddenly within the next week or so, I started to see solutions that were there the whole time that I just wasn't attuned to. I knew people. There was a woman that I knew that I'd see off and on for years, but she was a chiropractor and she took me to wild oats, you know, that was before it was bought up by Whole Foods. I didn't know it existed. It was there the whole time. (laughs) And I knew her, but because I was asking, how can I get better now? Suddenly it shows up in my field of awareness, the right books, the right teachers, the right online resources and summits and all these things that I started to like pay attention to. Nine months later, after that moment of decision to get healthy, my disc degenerative disease had completely reversed. You know, I went and got the MRI done and my two herniated discs had retracted on their own as well. And by this time I had already, I was glowing I'd lost all the weight, but I didn't just look like a person who lost weight. I looked really healthy, just radiantly healthy. And people at my university, even my professors were like coming up to me and asking me what I did and if I can help them. And so I became a strength and conditioning coach, eventually opened my practice as a nutritionist. Eventually after, you know, working with countless people, I was like, I need to write this down, you know, so I could tell more people the model health show. And, you know, the rest is history. Uh, It's incredible. It's an incredible story. And so much comes to mind. I relate with your childhood so much. When I was born in Argentina, but when we moved to the U.S., we lived in just a small town. But we happened to move into a house that if you walked through the woods for less than two minutes, you would find yourself in the back of the parking lot of McDonald's. That's where we moved. What a a treasure hunt. (laughs) I mean, it was the ba- as a kid, I was the house that everyone wanted to go to because we could go there. And so to me, McDonald's was like this excitement. And it was independence, right? It was like the one place that we could walk to. And when 
we talk about education, right? So we both grew up in a time when people just didn't know. And some of that stuff still follows us because even when I decided I wanted to be healthier, my focus was not how do I improve my health? If you ask yourself, how do I get better? My question was, how do I lose weight? And the difference is that it wasn't about improving. My mind went to deprivation and suffering. So McDonald's was joy. Then being healthier was deprivation and suffering. And so obviously I was like ping-ponging. I could never stay healthy long enough because it had all these emotions around it and this feeling of lack of love. What I had to really change my focus on, and obviously tapping was a big part in supporting me, is to go to how do I improve myself instead of how do I change myself? Because even that, sometimes you say change, it's like, well, you're not good enough, so you got to change. But the idea of how do I improve myself, if we're moving towards something, there's so much more passion to it than trying to run away from something else. Yeah. Yeah. Even the idea of change, absolutely, it is very counterhuman. All right. We like being who we are. We just want new things to happen, but we like being who we are. We're comfortable. Let me make that clear. We're comfortable being who we are. And so in my clinical practice, I knew that people want change, but they don't want to change that much. Because everything about us, the number one driving force of the human psyche is to stay congruent with the ideas we carry about who we are. That's the number one driving force. Every action we take, every thought we think, every feeling we feel is in association with who we believe ourselves to be. It's the most powerful thing in the universe when we really get this. And the thing is, we get to change that. So once you realize this and you realize that the entire show is really happening with our psyche and what we can do to positively shift this. And you just said something so important. I got I got really got to talk about this. When we think about diet, there are certain beliefs and feelings that come up in our bodies when we think about a diet or going on a diet. For most of us here in our culture, the word diet is associated with restriction, with deprivation, with not enough, and with struggle. Mm -hmm. These are all tied up psychologically. A hard time. Now, any of those words, if you think about it logically, do not sound like health. Right. It does not sound like a good time, right? How in world can, you know, restriction and deprivation, it doesn't even have the same tone to it. And so this is why Eat Smarter is such an important book and why a big reason behind me writing this book is that, unfortunately, in our culture, when we think about diet and nutrition, it's usually in the context of weight. That's what we tie it to. Mm -hmm. But I really wanted to bring to bear, number one, we have to give people what they want, of course. So we do break down the most effective cutting edge science and how our bodies actually work in relationship to food with our metabolism. We're taking people behind the scenes for the first time in book form, which is crazy that I'm saying this, and show them how their metabolism actually works. How does, quote, fat burning happen? Where does fat go? Right? So <laughs> demystifying the process and then honing in on what are the specific nutrients and foods that are needed to build our fat loss related hormones and neurotransmitters and make everything work better, right? So demystifying, but also adding, not taking away. Things you think will get taken away, I promise you, it'll be another side to it. It'll be another side to the story. So 
that's number one. But I wanted to really layer on because now we got a belief system about what food is and we've got one leg. Food has something to do with my body fat. That's not a very stable table. All right. No. That rhymes. It's a very stable table. <laughs> the belief needs more legs for us to make decisions that feel good. And so I dove into the data. And of course, like this is, it's been 19 years, but really just looking at very, very specific topics, right? With randomized controlled trials, we're looking for a specific intervention and a specific outcome. And what is proven to work to literally improve our memory, to improve our ability to focus, to improve our proclivity towards creativity, to protect our brain against accelerated aging. What are the things we know for certain? Because many of my friends, they've written books about, you know, slowing down dementia or Alzheimer's, but how do you actually make your brain work better? What are those things? And there's so many things, it's absurd. And so that's there. But most important and really at the heart of the book for me is how food affects our emotional intelligence and how we relate to other people. The data is crazy on how nutrition or lack thereof affects our ability to perspective take, to put ourselves in someone else's shoes, affects our ability to have empathy, affects our proclivity towards violence. It's all there in the data and just every page once folks get to chapter one, I want to make sure every single page has an aha moment. Just like, oh my, yeah. I can't believe it. To the degree that it's just so obvious that, oh wow, this food, yes, it helps with my metabolism, but it also improves my memory. And it also makes me a better parent. And it also makes me more effective in my job. All things that you're moving towards, right? Like yes. you're not running yeah. away from the weight, you're moving towards what you want. I want to go into some specifics about the foods that can impact our emotions, but I want to also bring up that a big aha for me years ago was to realize that I had to stop looking at diet and start getting excited about learning how things work which is what you're sharing here, but there is an energy behind that because there's something exciting when you get to understand this is how my metabolism works. This is why I'm struggling. This is why I'm having a craving. This is what's biologically happening to me. All those insights are so exciting and help you move forward, again, instead of running away. And I think I hope that's like the biggest takeaway is that this isn't about running away and depriving ourselves. But if we can get excited, I often say if it's not pleasurable, it's not sustainable. Mm, so yeah. if we can't find pleasure in reading about these things and learning how our body works, then it's not going to be the driving force. But if we have a good book like this, if we start getting excited to learn about this stuff, it's pleasurable and it's sustainable. That being said, let's talk a bit about the foods that can impact our emotions. Like what is something that we need to be careful of that can really impact either anger, like you mentioned, or even depression? Awesome. This is a great question. Well, we need to build something here. And as you mentioned, the process has to be enlivening, fun, easy to understand, because a big reason that publishers, agents, the folks who supposedly know, they fight against getting big idea books out like this and just say, hey, this diet's hot right now. Why don't you do a book about that? Or, the three-step plan. Just give them a three-step plan. Yeah, give them a three-stepper, <laughs> right? Or just eat this, not that. Yeah. And the thing is, look at how it served our society. It has not worked. We continue to get sicker and sicker. And the truth is, so much of the data is written in a language of academia. 
And even though the data might exist that we've got a randomized controlled trial, say, just for example, that we discover curcumin, which is one of the phytonutrients in turmeric, it has these what's called anti-angiogenesis properties. And what that means is it's able to cut off the blood supply to cancer cells. We got a study proving that it can help. Wow. It takes on average, though, once we have a study done like that, 17 years for it to become an optional in clinical practice. It doesn't make any sense when we can be helping people right now. Well, also, turmeric is not a huge moneymaker. Let's be real. That's it. I mean, Noah's making millions on turmeric. So there's obviously not the motivation even to sometimes these studies don't happen because they don't have the funding because they don't have like a huge lobbying for turmeric. Right. So it's amazing that that study exists. There's no turmeric lobbyists out there (laughs) with their, you know, stained fingers. (laughs) (laughs) So the reason I'm bringing this up is that this data exists, but there's a veil of complexity to it. It was so crazy when I came across this quote that's attributed to Einstein, but I didn't know the guy and we didn't have lunch. But the quote says that if you can't explain it simply, you don't know it well enough. All right. And so what I've done and the reason truly like this is crazy. It became the number one new release book of all books in the United States. It makes no sense, but it kind of (laughs) does. It's because I'm taking the complexity out of it and making it fun to learn about these things. We should know about our bodies. We live with ourselves all the time, but it's just shrouded in complexity that really, even for myself, dissuaded me from being interested in health and seeing terrible health outcomes. And so- The reason I'm saying that, again, is I want to paint a picture and just ask some questions. Where are our thoughts, feelings, and emotions, where are they really stemming from? And a lot has to do with this incredible brain that we have. And the human brain, uh, theoretical physicist Michio Kaku says that it's the most complicated object in the known universe. All right. He's a pretty smart guy. For him to make a statement like that, it's just like, what? That's crazy. But here's the cool part. We all have one. We all have one of the most complicated and powerful entities in the known universe. But the rub is we generally don't know how to use it very well. All right. It's just kind of doing stuff all the time. We don't really know what's going on. So to demystify that and ask, okay, what are the basic principles that's going to help me to have better thoughts, more balanced perceptions and emotions? Number one is asking, what is our brain actually made of? What is it made of? This incredible organ because that was a thing that changed my life and my health. I asked, what are my discs in between my vertebrae? What are they made of? They're supposedly degenerating. What are they made of? What are my bones made of? Because I just thought it was calcium. So I'm like guzzling milk, like I'm getting paid for it, (laughs) all right? But there was like 20 other things that are even more important, you know, silica and magnesium, and even omega-3 fatty acids are needed for bone density. I wasn't getting any of that in my drive-through diet, you know? I was like at least 20% sunny delight, you know, in my blood. (laughs) So I was not getting the right stuff to rebuild and regenerate. So number one, this powerful organ located atop of our bodies, it's the most powerful entity and complicated, but it's also incredibly delicate. All right. That's like the poetry of life. You've got this powerful entity, but it's as delicate as my feelings after watching a Disney movie now. Like it's just... (laughs) If you've got kids, you just become 90% more sensitive. And so it's about the consistency of soft butter. It is that delicate. 
And so wow. nature presented it with a party gift, which is it's the only organ fully encased in hard bone, you know, which is our cranium. But there's also an internal security system because through our evolution, truly, if you eat something, it can potentially kill you. And your body is working hard to make sure it does not get to your brain. Only very specific things make it to your brain. We call it neuronutrition because of what's called the blood-brain barrier, the blood-brain barrier. And if you want to look at it, it's like a toll booth. And certain things are allowed that they have express paths to just go right through. And other things are getting met by a very muscular toll booth attendant. You know, I pictured Dwayne The Rock Johnson, you know, at the toll booth. And he's like kicking unwanted nutrition asses and not allowing them in, you know, kick ass, take names later. Is that how it goes? I think that's how it goes. But there's there's a movie, uh, I think it was um, Guardians of the Galaxy. She was like, take ass, kick names or something like that. She mixed it up. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> sorry. We just, <laughs> we just watched it the other day. So here's what's allowed to get in the brain. Fundamentally, the fastest, because it's what the brain is made of, is water. All right. Your brain has express pathways for water. Your brain is about 80% water. So all this talk about you need to be, stay hydrated. No, seriously. And here's what <laughs> happens when you don't. This is one of the studies that I covered and kind of broke down and eat smarter. And this was published in Medicine and Science in Sports and Exercise. And they found just a 2% drop in your body's baseline hydration level led to impairment, mental impairment, and tasks requiring attention, led to impairment in motor coordination, led to impairment in executive functions, things like map recognition, like knowing where you are in your environment, grammatical reasoning, mental math, the list goes on and on. Basically, we get dumber. Yeah, We get dumber very quickly when your brain is dehydrated. All right. So this is not a small thing. And I give, there's so much nuance with, okay, what type of water how much water to drink, but I'm not a big proponent of giving cookie cutter answers, but you will discover what is right for you by getting these pieces of education. But I just want to start with that. You know what's annoying about it though, is that it's so easy. And when things are easy, like everyone wants the complicated solution because we think for something to work, it has to be difficult and complicated. Right. And here you're like, drink water because when you're dehydrated, you're dumb and you make bad decisions <laughs> and you're being emotional. And it's so simple that we just forget and we get busy because we think like, oh, whatever, it's drinking water. It's important to be like, no, seriously, this is a big deal. Right. There was some magazine just came out about all the biohackers in LA. Yeah. They're trying to biohack, you know, like what's the new nootropic? What's the electrode I could strap to my, you know, to my scrotum and my <laughs> ears and whatever and like electrocute my brain on. Just drink. Drink water. Just drink some water. <laughs> Let's start there. For most people, this is going to be a game changer because most folks are chronically dehydrated. I know that I was. So let me give one quick tip for that. For me, I love this term that I've been using for, for many years. Every morning when I get up, I take what I call an inner bath, all right, an inner bath. And so and I've been doing this for about 15 years because, of course, the day can get away from you. And But when you're sleeping, your brain is undergoing an immense amount of processes. We're talking about trillions of things are happening, literally. And there's a lot of metabolic waste that result from all these processes for your brain, even while you're sleeping, for example, during REM sleep, you have something called memory processing take place where the things you're learning right now get consolidated and put into that short-term memory where it can eventually become long-term memories, powerful stuff, but there is waste. 
And what we know today, one of the biggest hallmark things that we see with Alzheimer's is an inability of the brain to clean itself. All right. This accumulation of metabolic waste in the brain, your brain is 10 times more active when you go to sleep than during the day at cleaning house. The glymphatic cells that clean your brain are 10 times more active during sleep. It's important. Because of this, we have to literally flush these metabolic wastes out of our bodies. Some things can literally get reabsorbed. And this is true. Your fat cell can release the stored contents, but it can get reabsorbed somewhere else. We have to actually get it from our system. So this is why drinking water is important in the morning. It's the longest time most folks go without drinking. You are, in fact, dehydrated when you get up. And you get this little benefit, something called water-induced thermogenesis. And what that means is, in one of the studies I talk about in the book, they had test subjects to consume 17 ounces of water just within a couple of minutes, and it immediately turned up their body's metabolism. But this isn't just from their body trying to heat up water, the, the temperature of the water. No, it was directly from the burning of stored body fat. So this water-induced thermogenesis caused the test subjects to burn about 25 to 50 more calories from drinking 17 ounces of water. All right. And coffee does not count as water. No. To be clear. Sunny Delight. Just because it has water in it. Coffee, <laughs> those things, water. Your body needs water. All right. So I implore you to take on this practice. Start each morning. Have your inner bath. My wife doesn't like to drink room temperature or cold water in the morning. She warms it up. Has it with a little bit of lemon. She's been doing that for years. You know, so... I would recommend somewhere around 16 to upwards of even 30 ounces of water start the day just to get that good internal house cleaning. So that's the tip for that. And then with water, I'm going to share this one last piece. And then we could talk about some other specific nutrients for the brain. But the water also needs to come along with the thing that makes water able to do what it does because it's just inert unless it has electrolytes. All right. Listen to the name. Electrolytes. All right, electrolytes. This is what's needed for signal transduction and the electrical currency that our bodies and our brains are run on. For your cells to talk to each other, you have to have electrolytes. It is that important. And another study was a double-blind placebo-controlled study. This was published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. Found that improving magnesium levels in adult test subjects who had noted cognitive decline, they were between the age of 50 and 70, could potentially reverse brain aging by over nine years. Whoa. Looking at their brains, their brains were functioning and having the appearance as if they were younger by getting in this important electrolyte. Magnesium is an electrolyte. And I also talk about sodium and potassium. These things are fuel for your brain, all right? So we can get it in food. We can get it in high-quality salts. You know, it's different, you know, mineral drops and supplements and things, but we want to really focus on food first. So it's not just water. It's also the electrolytes to make the magic happen. Right. So the other day I had trouble remembering something. I was talking to my brother, Nick, and I was just like stumbling over my words. And he goes, what's wrong with you? Did you forget to take your fish oil? And I laughed so hard. I was like, I love how that's the insult in my family. Did you forget to take your fish oil? Like, what's wrong? What's, what's wrong with your brain? And so I wanted to talk a bit about omegas. Okay. Yep. Sick burn, Nick. Ooh. <laughs> that's how we insult each other. What's wrong with you? Take your fish oil. But yeah, in my family, we're definitely into the omegas. So I'd love to hear a little a bit about that. Oh my goodness. 
Everybody listening, this is one of the most important and proactive things that you can do to literally change your life. This is so important. Now, when we get into the, quote, solid matter of the brain, right, the dry weight of the brain, because the brain, again, 80% water, this is the most water-dominant organ in the body next to your lungs, next to that is fat. And a lot of people hear that, you know, they hear about, you know, you need fat for your brain, but it is so nuanced and it is not what you think at all. There's a nice portion of your brain that is saturated fat, for example. And the majority of that is because when you're a baby, your brain is sopping up saturated fat like you have no idea. Even mother's milk can be upwards of 50% saturated fat. So to say saturated fat is bad is a wild misnomer in and of itself. There's nuance there, all right? Here's the thing though. As we get older, those gates, those toll booths allowing saturated fat to get into the brain start to close down. So when you're an adult, your body absorbs very, very, very little saturated fat into the brain itself. Except we're not talking about like medium chain triglycerides. We're not getting into that yet, if we get into that. But saturated fat in the, what we think about. But here's the thing. The brain still, if it needs saturated fat, it can actually make it itself, which is really cool. But I want to make that caveat. What is continuously, I'm talking express pass, very similar to water. Water is, has the most lanes for the toll booth to get through with the express pass. Next up is omega-3 fatty acids, all right? It is this important. Now listen to this. The American Journal of Clinical Nutrition discovered that increasing dietary levels of DHA, I'm gonna get specific on this. So there's categories, there's DHA, EPA, ALA. DHA and EPA are well noted to be more of the quote animal sources, but we're gonna talk about if you're taking a vegan or vegetarian protocol, what can you do? It is not the same as ALA. In my clinical practice 10 years ago, you know, 12 years ago, I would just get people on omega-3s, get some fish oil, I'm not sorry, get some flaxseed oil, get some chia seeds, you get your omega-3s. It is not the same. Your brain does not allow ALA into it to do the jobs that it does like DHA and EPA. But it's so important, your body can take some of the ALA from chia seeds, flax seeds, all that stuff, you know, borage oil, and it can convert some into DHA and EPA because it's so starving to do it, but you lose about 90% in the conversion process. So to get the amount of DHA that you need for your brain to do what I'm about to share, you're gonna have to eat like, oh my God, like seven bags of chia seeds a day, which if that's the case, you might as well set your office up in a porta potty and work from there <laughs> because you're gonna you're gonna be there for a while. Okay, so here's what they found: the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition discovered that increasing dietary levels of DHA was able to improve both memory and reaction time in test subjects within a matter of days. Improve their memory within a matter of days. All right, that's the good stuff. Now here's the dark side of it. Another study, and this one actually, they looked at the brain using MRIs. They discovered that folks who had the lowest intake of DHA and EPA had the highest rate of brain shrinkage, all right? Their brains were actually shrinking much more rapidly because they were not providing their brains with adequate amounts of DHA and EPA. And this is because these fats are what are known as structural fats. They're needed to actually build your brain cells, 
and allow plasticity of the cells and also signal transduction that I talked about so that your brain cells can talk. This is not cool. You don't want your brain to, you know, it's not the shrinkage is like, if guys know, like if it's like cold or whatever, this is like, <laughs> you're not coming back from this. Like you're, you're literally losing the mass of your brain. Now here's the nuance and where to get it. Okay, DHA and EPA. Food first, ideally food first. And the journal Neurology found that folks who ate one seafood meal per week, just one per week, do in fact perform significantly better on cognitive skills test than folks who get less than one seafood meal per week. All right, so that's the food overarching food first. And we're talking, obviously we think about fish, but are we talking about calamari, shrimp? Like is most seafood in general tend to have DHA? That's a good question. So there's such a variety of fish. And yes, a lot of these different, quote, seafoods are gonna have high amounts of DHA and EPA. But let me be specific. Let me give you the top, top, all right? Yes, please. And this isn't just me just like, oh, I think this sounds good. This is me working with neuroscientists looking, literally looking inside and looking at the brain to see what happens. The highest source that you're going to find of DHA and EPA is actually not the fish itself, but fish eggs. All right. So like caviar and salmon roe. I'm not a big fan, but I can't talk about anything in efficacy if I don't try them, you know, but yes, there can be three times as much DHA and EPA. It's so dense. But as you mentioned earlier, the fish oil, that for 99% of the studies, they're using fish oil in the studies. And one of the most, again, common source of DHA and EPA, let me give you a specific with studies. This was a randomized placebo-controlled study. This is a gold standard. And this was cited in the Nutrition Journal, found that healthy test subjects taking three grams of fish oil per day for five weeks significantly improved their cognitive performance compared to those taking a placebo. So all manner. So we're talking about explicit memory, declarative memory, focus, everything got better. Now, this isn't an advocation for fish oil. I want you, whatever it takes, to get DHA and EPA. So next after that, the next rung, if you're doing a vegetarian protocol, maybe this will fit into your framework ethically. And it's krill oil, all right, krill oil. It's a microscopic, micro, microscopic, and the word that I'm going to use can throw people off. It's a microscopic shrimp, and I'm using quotes, but it's so tiny. And it's also, it, it is so dense in astaxanthin. So instead of like the kind of goldish color of fish oil, it's red. And it actually absorbs even better. You get even more omega-3s from it because of the astaxanthin. So if that fits into your framework, krill oil is a wonderful. And the, the reason I'm saying krill is that it also, we've got some peer-reviewed studies now on how effective it is. The next rung, if you, for a pure plant source, and I really need everybody to do this, regardless of where you lie on the spectrum, please get yourself some DHA and EPA, is algae oil, right? Algae oil is a dense plant-based source of DHA and EPA. Now, this is a caveat as well. We don't have clinical trials proving how effective it is. We do know the DHA and EPA is there. Right. But I don't want you to wait around until we have some studies affirming it because it is so important to literally protect your brain from shrinking. It is that important. Yeah. I have um, a DHA story. I mean, I, I obviously take it. But when I had Enzo and he was first born, he had horrible allergies. I mean, to the point where I could barely eat anything because he I was breastfeeding him and he would just get horrible eczema all over his body. 
And um, it does run in my family. Allergies do run in my family. But I was like, all right, I got to figure this out with food. I got to figure out like how to help him as much as possible. So I went to an expert. And one of the things they had me get him on was DHA, saying that it's really good, not just for your brain, but also your gut. And so when he started having solid foods, he started taking DHA. It has been a year and a half. He's two years old. Every single day he has applesauce with fish oil, with DHA fish oil, which is like hysterical to me because one day someone's going to give him applesauce without fish oil and he's going to be like, what is this? (laughs) This is the best applesauce I've ever had. Um, His allergies are so much better, but what's so extraordinary, and obviously I don't know if I can make this exact connection, but his memory is nuts. I mean, to the point where he goes once a week to a Montessori school and multiple times his teachers have been like, Like today, literally today, I got a message. I taught him the names of Asian animals, of 10 Asian animals once, and he repeated them all back to me Mm, and put them in the right spot. And I really feel that starting that young age and having DHA every single day with applesauce, I'm sure is impacting his brain and his development, especially right now. And so... Obviously, it's great that he's doing it as a kid, but as we get older, so many of us worry about being forgetful, and we notice it happening. And if you're listening to this and you sometimes feel like your brain is off, there are solutions. It's not just something that comes with old age. So it is really empowering to know that this is an option and important for our mental health, which is our emotional health. Yeah. And also, just on that note, too, with our babies, this is not talked about enough. Babies will literally they will confiscate every single bit of DHA and EPA in their mother's bodies while they're in the womb and also breastfeeding. They will nab all of it. It is so important. Nature designed it so that the baby's development is more, it needs this from you. I'm sorry, you're going to have to. And there's so much there related to some of the issues that we can see post-pregnancy. And it's just not talked about enough. And the data exists. So when I want to throw in one more quick brain food. This one a lot of folks probably don't hear much about, but it's called phospholipids, all right, phospholipids. And I'll just share a quick study. This was a, again, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial, gold standard, discovered that the consumption of phospholipids helped test subjects to enhance their attention and improve reaction time while, not just that, but while they placed them under stress, while under stress. Huh. And couldn't we use that right now? You know, couldn't we use that? (laughs) And so phospholipids, they're they're predominantly made from these omega-3s again, but you can also get them from food. And this goes into different things like phosphatidylserine, phosphatidylcholine, yada, yada. But let me give you a couple of quick sources. Yeah, what do I have to eat? (laughs) (laughs) All right, let me give you a couple quick sources of phospholipids. So phospholipids are you're going to find again in seafood, predominantly fish, crab meat, salmon roe, as I mentioned earlier, krill, but also in plant foods like milk, oats, soybeans, sunflower seeds. These are all good sources. All right. And this isn't an advocation because somebody might be here, soybeans. Did he say, I thought soy was bad. There's a nuance with all of this stuff. And of course, the closer we can get to nature, you know, a soybean versus a soy dog, right? A soy wiener (laughs) that we're eating, soy hot dog. Very different, all right? So I wanted to share that, but uh, lastly, just specifically talking about emotion and managing our emotion and feeling good and that emotional intelligence. 
this is one of the craziest freaking studies. I don't think people really get, I don't talk too much about the real details of this. I'll share a little bit more here, but researchers at The Ohio State University wanted to find out what would happen with married couples if they had abnormal blood sugar. What would happen? In, in our culture, we do this pretty much every meal. We eat processed foods, we get a blood sugar spike, and then we have a correlating, what we call a crash. We go hypoglycemic. And nature takes your blood sugar extremely serious because it needs to be on point through our evolution for you to manage threats and to be aware if you're going to need to fight or flee or in contact with anything. It's just like, is this person or is this animal going to eat me or am I going to eat it, right? To make these decisions and even being stable in case you need to move and escape danger. Even though everything's cool now, you know, we can drive a Tesla, you know, we can like watch Netflix. Our hard wiring is still very primal, very primal programming. And so to get your blood sugar back up, because it has to, your body, it can do it, but it releases what are called catecholamines, right? These category, what we call these stress hormones, like adrenaline and cortisol. Most people, this is happening every freaking meal. A big, big dose of cortisol is getting released and adrenaline to get their blood sugar normalized. The side effect is it can make us very irritable. And so they strapped on continuous glucose monitors onto the married couples. And they discovered that whenever they had abnormal blood sugar, they were far less likely to have empathy and patience for their partner. They were far more likely to be aggressive towards their partner. And this is the big thing. They were far less likely to resolve their relationship issues. Now, if you take a look at the world right now, there is a massive inability for folks to resolve our conflicts, to communicate with each other. The solutions to things exist. I know so many people feel like, why won't they just listen? You know, the science is there, da, da, da. We're just not well. We're not well. It's not that it's impossible to have empathy and patience when you don't feel well. It's just harder. And to the degree, this is the last one I'll share here in this because it's very, very important. They wanted to find out, these researchers, and they were just, they were shocked. This was incredibly shocking. How our nutrition might affect our proclivity towards violence against other people. And so they took a group of prison inmates. All right. Now, this is an unfortunate circumstance. However, from the perspective of science, it's great because it's a ward study where you can track everything. Right. They're not like escaping and like going to you know, to get a fresh salad somewhere. Like right. you're monitoring everything. And so what they did was, and this was conducted by researchers at Oxford University, all right? And what they did was they gave prison inmates, one group of prison inmates, improved nutrition. And this was just very rudimentary stuff, vitamins, minerals, and omega-3 fatty acids, all right? So they gave one group of test subjects increased nutrition through supplementation, vitamins, minerals, omega-3s, while the other group of inmates received a placebo. They compiled the data. This was a multi-month study. So three to four months later, they compiled all the data and they found that the inmates who received improved nutrition had a 40% reduction in behavioral offenses. 40? 40? That's yes. huge. Now listen to this. They also found that they had a 37% reduction in violent offenses. Wow. 
Now, this was so shocking that another set of researchers, they and I went back and I read that their notes as well, they didn't believe that it was possible. So they repeated it with another set of inmates at a different prison. This was published in the journal Aggressive Behavior, which there's a journal for everything, by the way, yeah. scientific <laughs> journal. And so they repeated it and got almost the exact same figures when they repeated the study by improving their nutrition. Because what it is, what it really boils down to is that our brains, especially the prefrontal cortex, we'll just use for this example, is responsible for social control, for distinguishing between right and wrong and executive function decision-making, like being able to map out, okay, if I take this action, this is going to be the result. And if I don't want the result, I'm not going to take that action to have that self-restraint. Mm -hmm. And even like you sending that, you're upset with your boss, like being able to not send the email or whatever. But that part of the brain, when it starts to become malnourished, other parts of the brain that are more associated with, you know, with emotion and with survival of self, like the amygdala, start to take over. As a matter of fact, they become hyperactive. And so by improving our nutrition, it literally nourishes our brain so that we can make better decisions. This is a big reason why I wrote this book, coming from where I come from and seeing so much violence, seeing so much aggression from so many different aspects of it, not just the people in the community, but just even the governing forces around the community. I knew that this was in a conversation that was not being had. And I knew because it happened to me it happened to me how getting myself healthier changed my perception of the world and made me so much more patient and kind and compassionate. I had it in me already, but I wasn't living like that. You know, I was taught in an environment where you have to fight. You solve your problems through violence. But suddenly I realized there's more. There's more answers. There's more solutions. And so this is why, again, I, this is really the heart of the book because we can create an absolute movement. Once we get our citizens healthier, we can have healthier conversations. Yes. We're trying to do these things with an incredibly sick society. We are arguably the sickest society in human history, you know, self-inflicted. We have over 200 million adults right now in the country, here in the United States, who are overweight or obese. We'll just say I have 30 close family members growing up. 28 of them are obese. These are people I love. My disease came in the fashion of asthma, allergies, degenerative bone disease. It outpictured differently. They didn't want to be obese. They tried. They did Jenny Craig. They did the Slim Fast, you know. They tried the things, but nothing worked, you know. And ultimately, to understand truly how much our nutrition affects our perception of reality, real food, real nutrition, and... Enabling us, again, let me be clear. I'll say this last time. There's one more thing. It's not that it's impossible for my mother to have patience with us when she's malnutritioned. It's just way harder. Yeah. She was not that fun to be around. And so for so many of us, it's not that we can't have patience and compassion and empathy for other people when we're not well. It's just harder. We have over 200 million adults who are overweight or obese. We're getting close to 50% being clinically obese. Right now we're at 43%. 60% of the population has some degree of advanced heart disease and hardening of the arteries. 115 million of us are regularly sleep deprived. 135 million adults have diabetes or prediabetes. Enough is enough. If we can get our citizens healthier, we can start to really solve our problems, our biggest problems that we're facing that are superficial because we're not healthy. Yes, we can break generational patterns 
as well, right? Because we are, some might argue, the most unhealthy generation, but some of these habits did come from our parents or at least started when we were young. And I think what I'm hearing from you, what's coming to mind is just the sense of needing to be compassionate towards those struggling in poverty and the impact that it has on their ability to get healthy foods when we're subsidizing things like sugar and corn and things that are unhealthy. And obviously, this is a conversation we can have for another hour. But I do hope the biggest takeaway is that when we understand the circumstances that they're in, we can begin to have more compassion and start to look at it as an actual problem. This is a problem. We need to make healthier food cheaper and easier to access. We need this information to be easily accessible because our country depends on it, right? It really does. Our country depends on on health. And when we're looking to motivate ourselves to be healthier, we can hold on to that greater movement, that we're part of something greater than just the weight loss or just our physical appearance. Like every time that we take care of ourselves, we really are contributing to the world. Absolutely. And you just said it again. You said a word here, you know, for looking at things being subsidized and the encouragement of eating these things. And I literally, I'm a big fan of like, you know, the Jerry Maguire, show me the money. I want to know, like, what is driving all of this stuff to happen? Because again, when I'm in that circumstance, when I'm living in Ferguson, Missouri, I didn't know that there was anything else. I didn't know that, I didn't know what healthy food was. It was just stuff that I eat. The options with your food stamps. Yeah. Right? Like you're limited by those options. Exactly. And so what I did was I went back and actually traced to find out how all of this is actually happening. And it was one of the most eye-opening things for me because it just affirmed what I already knew to be true. And there was a study, and this was in the peer-reviewed journal, one of our most prestigious journals, the Journal of the American Medical Association, Internal Medicine. It set out to find if the consumption of the foods that are subsidized by the U.S. government led to worse health outcomes and higher rates of disease. So to actually track the root of the foods that are subsidized by our government, and when I say subsidized by our government, that means we're paying for it. Mm -hmm. That means we're paying for it. Our U.S. government handed out almost $200 billion in agricultural subsidies, which 99.9% of that was mostly for corn, wheat, soy, and these are the biggest foods showing up through the drive through windows, all right? And processed foods, these are the ones. And so after adjusting for age, sex, socioeconomic factors, and other variables, so it's accounting for all that stuff, they found that the folks who had the highest consumption of the subsidized foods from our government had almost a 40% greater incidence of being obese. It's tragic. We're literally feeding the problem. And we have to bring awareness to this. Again, this isn't about being malicious. It might've started off with good intent to feed America, yep. but it's feeding the problem. And we can simply, if we look at it, we get clear about it. We look at the data, we can start to change it. Amazing. And we can start by getting your book, Eat Smarter, Educating Ourselves, Sharing It With Friends or Family. If you want to keep this conversation going, guys. If you love what you're hearing from Sean, you have to subscribe to his podcast. You can go to the Model Health Show and, you know, he's just sharing so much. And Sean, I just want to thank you so much for being generous with your time and sharing so much with us. And congratulations on this amazing book. Thank you. It means so much. I appreciate you so much. Thank you. 